Well, hello. So I texted Pat this morning to see if he survived this run. Um, I haven't heard back from him. <laughs> now, it's possible that it's tomorrow, in which case it's good that he's going to church one last time. So. <clears throat> I forgot my clicker. Uh. So we've been uh, working our way through Romans. I mean, ah. <laughs> <sighs> That was a bad omen, right? <laughs> Hebrews, we've been working our way through Hebrews. We are starting in today in uh, chapter 9. Last time I was up here, I, I did something from chapter 2. Uh, so, it's always good to remind ourselves of why a book was written. Um, why a letter is written. There's a context to the, to the letter. There is a reason for it being written. So the, the big picture in Hebrews is that the Hebrew, these Jewish believers in Christ um, were being tempted to turn away from Christ. Hebrews was a warning to those who were being tempted to drift away from their great salvation in Christ, as we saw in chapter 6. And there's a warning given about turning apostate in Hebrews. Apostate means to walk away from the faith. And Hebrews brings up a whole lot of interesting conundrums as it comes to whether or not people can lose their salvation in Christ once they have it. Once they possess faith in Christ, can they lose it? And historically, people have uh, divided this up, this idea of what is going on in Hebrews about those who walk away from the faith into three categories, really. First group is that can... They just say you lose your salvation. It is possible for those who are in Christ to lose their salvation in Christ. They can walk away from it. There are groups that believe that. Um, there are other groups who would say, no, that um, non-believing covenant members all right, you can be a non-believing covenant members, and that's what it is talking about here. What do I mean by that? Um, there are groups like Presbyterian and Reform-minded people who, who, what is the distinction among those groups? What do they do? It has to do with baptism. Infant baptism. Why do you infant baptize? Why do you baptize babies? They baptize because they are making them covenant members. 
So what, is, what Hebrews is talking about is covenant members, those who are members of the covenant, but who are not believers. They have not met this covenant relationship with faith and are justified. That's how another group handles it. Um, the idea being not all Israel is Israel, right? Not everybody born into Israel is Israel. They're not believers by faith. And then there's the group that says they went out from us, but they were not of us. That is typically how this church has believed. That they're, um, they're pretending. But it's interesting to me, no matter what position you take, the interesting part to me is that the scripture seems to identify a subgroup of people other than non-believers and believers. There's a subgroup in there that the scripture seems to recognize that there are unbelieving people who have tasted of the things of Christ. Right? They tasted of the things. And that could be the Lord's Supper, that could be baptism, that could be any of the, the ordinances. But it, it's odd because what does it say if you read in Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, that um, once they walk away, what is the result? They can't come back. So this Hebrews is a dire warning. It's a warning for those who have tasted of the good things of Christ to return to something other than Christ. And we'll talk about that in a second. So Hebrews, the big picture, continue. It's addressed to Jewish believers in Christ. Um, they were tempted to return to the inferior mediators of the Old Testament. So in chapters 1 through 4, we have the prophets. They were returning to the prophets. Uh, they were returning to angels. They were returning to Moses. And whether, whether or not you believe, whether or not they believe, that, believe rightly that they were viewing these things, prophets, priests, Moses, correctly, or um, like I said last time I was up here, that maybe they were taking the philosopher Philo's belief about these things, that these mediators were, were really... Um, they weren't even created. They were immaterial, just all this Platonic philosophy, which that's the last time I'll use the word Plato in this sermon. <laughs> Whether you believe a distorted view of these Old Testament figures or the correct view, the problem is, is that these believers were being tempted to return to these inferior mediators. Through one through four handles, prophets, angels, and Moses. And then four through ten. So a lot of chapters handles uh, the Aaronic priesthood and temple sacrifices. They were returning to that, and that's a big thing. Um, where, what is, why are they returning to the priesthood? Why are they returning to sacrifices? Now that Christ has come, the one and full, complete, final sacrifice. 
So let's turn to uh, Hebrews 9, if you're not there. Starting in verse 1 through 14. It says, Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies. Having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna, and Aaron's rod which budded, and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing, overshadowing the mercy seat, but of these things, we cannot speak in detail. Now, when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without ta taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having attained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Lord God, I just pray that as we go through this passage that you would reveal yourself in a mighty way. Lord, it, it is so instructive as to the work of Christ on our behalf, and Lord, that he is the full, complete, and final fulfillment of the entire Bible. From beginning to end, Lord, it was about your son and the, the doing and dying of Christ on our behalf. Lord, I pray that we would see it afresh and anew and remind us of these truths that we've learned many years ago in many cases, and that you would uh, bless the reading and the hearing of your word, in your holy name, amen. 14 verses, you're never going to get out of here. I mean, it's just, <laughs> just kidding, sort of. So they're tempted to return to inferior mediators is like, you know, there's, there's different kinds of medicine that people take, some medicines, um, are used to mitigate the symptoms of some disease. 
right? You, you have symptoms that are very uncomfortable, unpleasant, you take the medicine to mitigate the symptoms, to diminish the symptoms, to do what? To cover over the symptoms. And other medicines are taken to cure. So think of an antibiotic as designed to do what? It's designed to, to kill the bacteria that is in your bloodstream, in your, in your bones or wherever it is. So what the Hebrews are doing here, these Hebrew believers, they, they were given the cure, the medicine, the cure, and they're returning back to the medicines that only mitigate the symptoms. It's a big deal what they're doing, and that's why the, the warning is so dire, because there's only death with the one medicine, and there's life with the other. They're returning to death. So we see in verse 1, now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and earthly sanctuary. So what is the first covenant? The first covenant is the one given to Moses. It is what we would call the old covenant. Okay? So what is included with the first covenant? This is the one they got. So Moses goes up on Mount Sinai. God meets with him, gives him a vision of heavenly things. Gives him, he writes the Ten Commandments. Moses hears about the priesthood, sacrifices, the tabernacle. He hears all of this stuff. And he comes down and he tells the people. So the first covenant... um, So it contains the law, the Ten Commandments. Together, there are 613 laws. A lot of those are dietary laws, right? Some of those are, this is what you do, this is what you sacrifice, how you sacrifice, when to sacrifice, what to sacrifice. Uh, Here's what to do if you get a skin disease of some kind. If it's got the hair in it, not the hair in it. I mean, it's all very specific, right? Sexual ethics are discussed. Um, And of course, the the Big Ten, the Big Ten Commandments. So this law is given to Moses. Um, It establishes the priesthood through Aaron. Aaron is the, what? He is the high priest. And all high priests have to come through the lineage of, of Aaron, not only do they have to be a Levite, they have to be from the, lin- the line of Aaron to become the high priest. And then you have the Levitical priests, the other priests that help serve in the tabernacle um, under Aaron come from the tribe of Levi. It established the tabernacle and the sacrifices And as with all covenants, there are blessings and cursings that come along with it. So part of the covenant is what happens when you don't abide by it. That is actually part of the covenant. And this is the only covenant called old in Scripture. So when you think of the old covenant, the Bible refers to the old covenant 
as the one given to Moses. And there are the two passages that talk about that. All right, some misconceptions about the Old Covenant. Um, So a biblical covenant is not a contract. So Pat showed that film, that video last week about the different covenants. A covenant is not a contract. How many contracts are you forced to sign? That's not a contract. That's called what? I mean, you're forced to do something you don't want to do. It's slavery of some kind, right? The old covenant is imposed by God. The covenants in the Bible are God-imposed. They're not negotiations. They're not, hey, will you agree to do this and I'll do this? No, I will do this and you will do this. He's creator, we're the creation. He imposes the covenant. Sometimes God only obligates himself towards us. Like, it gets, it gets difficult, but... The covenant gave it, given to Abraham seems to be one-sided. Abraham, I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to raise a nation out of you. You're going to bless the world. I'm going to do these things for you. And the mosaic is conditional. You do this, and I'll do this. I'll bless you. You don't do this, and I'm going to curse you. I, know, I remember what? The earth opened up and swallowed 10,000, right? The Old Old Testament is not the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant is the promises given to Moses. The Old Testament contains more than just the Old Covenant. And I'm going to argue that it contains the New Covenant. It contains a lot more. The Old is a shadow or a copy of the New the new, and here it is, the new preceded the old. The new covenant precedes the old covenant. And I will show that in a, in a minute. People are not saved in the Old Testament by keeping the old covenant. They were saved by faith, right? It says in Genesis 15, 6, and Paul repeats it in Romans, that Abraham believed God, and that belief was reckoned as righteousness. It was reckoned as holiness, perfection. Job says, my Redeemer lives. There's all kinds of places in the Old Testament where people acted in faith, and it was that faith that reckoned them righteous before God, not the keeping of the law, not the keeping of the sacrificial system, right? A person, Galatians 2.16, a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Moses Abraham, Job, they believed in Jesus Christ by faith, and that's how they were justified. That's how they were saved. 
So that's what a covenant is, that's what a covenant is not. There's got to be a perfect spot for this. There it is. So in the first part of Hebrews 9 here, it goes on to describe, uh, and I won't read it again, but to describe the temple and the artifact, I mean the tabernacle and the artifacts in the tabernacle. Now the tabernacle is the one that Moses was told to make. It was a tent. They're wandering in the wilderness. They're told to pitch this tent, and it's called the tent of meeting, where they meet God. And wherever they settled, um, a, a cloud would form over it, and when the cloud moved off, they were to undo the tent, move it again, and then they would settle in a new spot. Now, this isn't the actual tabernacle. You know how I know this? Because there's like a power panel right here. <laughs> That's how I know it's not the real one. So this was a copy of what Moses saw when God took him up into heaven in his meeting with him on the mountain to show him. And he said what? He said, copy this. Hebrews 8.5. So the first tabernacle, the tabernacle, the tent, the portable temple, so to speak, described there, the building, um, and all that goes into it, the precision of everything that goes into it. Everything had a purpose. There was no wasted, there's nothing that's sitting in there as pure decoration for decoration's sake. Everything was doing work to help proclaim a message about the holiness and wonder and otherness of God. So this first tabernacle, so Moses, around 1500 BC, right? So then after this, the nation goes into Israel, the nation is established, they kick out the enemies. Um, the kings, we have a period of kings, David comes along, is kind of the pinnacle of uh, the kingship in Israel. And he wants to make a temple, and God says, no, you're a man of war. Uh, we're going to save that for your son Solomon. So Solomon constructs a temple. So the first temple, Solomon's temple, is built around 950 B.C., and it says that the Lord filled the, the house of the Lord. The presence of the Lord came down and sat upon uh, in the Holy of Holies. So it was eventually destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar II in 587. Uh, the Jews are taken off, right, into Babylon, the captivity. And here, the ark and its contents. So in the, the Holy of Holies, as it described here that I just read in Romans 9, that the Holy of Holies contained the ark, and in the ark was the Ten Commandments, it was the jar of manna, it was Aaron's budding rod, Okay? And on top were the cherubim that pointed towards each other, and between the two cherubim is the mercy seat. That's where God's presence resides. 
and after the temple was destroyed and the ark and its contents disappear. We never hear about them again until Indiana Jones and the Temple Raiders Lost Ark is made. They are gone. So then you have the second temple. Ezra and Nehemiah comes along. Uh, we have this, they come back out of captivity. They start to wander back. Uh, they get the, they, they're going to make another temple. This is called the second temple. So you have the tabernacle, the first temple, and the second temple. It started in 538 B.C., dedicated. There was a lot of story about trying to get this temple done, and there's all kinds, you can read about it in Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, But they finally get it done, and it's expanded and renovated by Herod the Great in 20 B.C. So 500 years later, Herod, who's what? He's an appointee of the Roman government to watch over Israel as part of the Roman Empire, the budding Roman Empire. And um, he decide, he's half Jew, he's half Edomite. He comes in, he decides to get in with the Jews and to help you know, shore up his, you know, being loved by the people. And he uh, renovates and expands the temple. That's 20 B.C. So that's the temple that Jesus was at the second temple renovated by Herod the Great. This isn't the Herod, there's another Herod that comes later that beheads John the Baptist and all that. Um, Interestingly, there's no description of the Lord filling it. Uh, There is no ark. The second temple had no ark. There is no Ten Commandments, there's no jar of manna, there's no Aaron's rod. It's the Holy of Holies is empty of those things. And it was destroyed by the Roman general Titus in 70 AD. This temple was finally destroyed. Uh, and you can go to Rome today and there's, a, there's an arch and it's Titus's arch and it shows them taking the menorah and all this stuff. Um, away from the temple. So what is the purpose of the temple? Purpose of the temple, it was a physical announcement that God is holy and men are not. That was the purpose of the temple, one of the purposes. Everything including the temple, the priestly garments testified something about God's nature and his character. Everything. You look at, um, Pat showed the picture of the priest last week with all the jewels. Everything signified something. It was a copy, a shadow of the heavenly things as we learned in, as Pat went through chapter 8, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. It is a copy. That's why it precede, the, uh, the, the new precedes the old. This old covenant is grounded in something that was seen up in heaven where Christ sits at the right hand of God. But the purpose that we're going to talk about, I mean, it has other purposes, but the purpose that we're going to talk about and that Romans 9 talks about here is that through sacrifice it brought people a temporary and external covering for sins. Verse 10. 
And so he talks about since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. Approaching God's presence is very dangerous business. If you read the Old Testament. It's not to be taken lightly in any way, shape, or form. And those like Nadab and Abihu took it lightly um, found out uh, to their death. In a way, the temple is a reenactment of something that hasn't happened yet. <laughs> I'll think of that for a second. So we have reenactors. We got some here in this church who do this nonsense, I mean, stuff. <laughs> they put on the garb of soldiers who fought in a war 200, 300 years ago, and they reenact um, the major events of, that, of, that, of those battles. So think of a Civil War reenactor dressing up. I've even heard of Civil War reenactors who starved themselves to look like a Southern soldier would. I mean, that's how serious these guys took this stuff. And so what's the point of the reenactment? To reenact the major events and the, um, the methodology, the, the way of thinking of, of, the, of the battle that actually occurred. But, you know, it's a reenactment. You know, when they get shot, they sure, they get fake shot, they're sure to fall underneath the shade in the tree so they don't have to sit in the sun until the battle's over, right? So the temple prefigures, it reenacts something that hasn't happened yet. It reenacts the, the future death, resurrection, atonement, the redeeming blood of Christ for sinners. And the idea in verse 6 says, now that these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. They're continually having to do this. The idea that um, the sacrifices um, have a sell-by date that they're, they wear out. You've got to renew them. You have to redo them, just like a garment wears out. And we'll see the garment um, analogy here right now. So what's going on here with the temple and its sacrifices? It's supposed to point to Christ. It's supposed to tell us of God. It's supposed to be where God's presence is and how precision and dangerous it is for you to go into God's presence. It is so, he is so holy that the people can't do it directly. They need to have a representative do it who prepares for a long time and very carefully to enter God's presence. So let's turn to Genesis 3.
starting in um, verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from it its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. So God gave them a law. Only one law they had to follow. They only had to keep one law. That was your test. It's a test. It's a quiz. It's got one test. It's got one question on it. You've got to do it correctly. And guess what? Your score is going to be all of mankind's score. The score you get is going to be everybody that comes after you score. They're going to get the same score. You're taking this test for everybody. Here's what you have to do. This tree over here, you can't eat of it. As someone said, as I heard a preacher once say, they could have, put, they could have carved into it, Adam loves Eve. They could have put a rope swing in it and swung from it all day. They could have done anything except eat from it. That's all they had to do. And they ate from it. It says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The idea of nakedness, as I've read, conveys the idea of weakness, of humiliation. Whenever the Bible used nakedness, that's what it's trying to convey. Humiliation and weakness. They knew something was wrong. They instinctively knew that they were something wrong. They heard the... uh, So they decided they need to cover themselves up. So they used leaves. Leaves are... not very good. And they're missing something very important that they didn't even think about, and that's blood. And we'll see that in a second. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, "I I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself, and he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and the dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise or crush you on the head. The seed of the woman will bruise and crush Satan on the head. And you, shall, and you Satan, will bruise his heel. That is a new covenant right there. That is the new covenant because who it is through the lineage of Adam and that's why the Bible is so careful about um, genealogy tracing the lineage of Christ all the way back to Adam. And it was the seed of the woman who crushes the head of the serpent. This is uh, a prophecy talking eventually about the, its ultimate fulfillment in Christ. 
Then he said, then to Adam, he said, um, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I have commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it. Let me jump down to 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. How does he make garments of skin? What does he have to do? He has to kill an animal. He has to kill, that wasn't even on their radar screen, to kill an animal to cover themselves. So it was with the shedding of, I mean, there is no remission of sins without the shedding of blood. It requires a blood sacrifice. So what did God do? The Lord God made coats of skins and he clothed them. He covered their shame, their humiliation. Did it deal, did that deal with the root cause of their sin? No, it covered it over. It was a covering. It didn't undo their desire and their wickedness to want to sin. It just covered it over. It was a shield. And that's what is going on in the temple. This is really the first instance of a temple sacrifice. And that's what goes on in the temple. So what is the purpose then of the law and the sacrifice? If it doesn't actually do, accomplish what we want it to, why was it instituted? So the purpose of the law, it was to restrain evil. Um, how does it restrain evil? Because there's punishments associated with it, right? You do this, you get this punishment. You do that, you get this punishment. Does that work perfectly? No, I mean, we wouldn't have speeding tickets if it worked perfectly, right? People still get speeding tickets because even though there's a law there and there's an associate punishment with breaking the law, they still uh, do it. And I did it two years ago. <laughs> the temple is a reflection, as I said, of God's character. Um, all these laws to Israel were given to teach them obedience, to listen to God's voice and to do what he says. But most importantly, the temple pointed to the ultimate sacrifice of Christ. It drove sinners to Christ. Turn to Galatians 3, 21. So is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if the law, verse three, yeah, three twenty one, if the law had been given, which is able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been used, would have been based on law. But the Scripture has shut up everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. For before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law. 
being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor, our schoolmaster. The word here is pedagogos. He's the slave with the stick who keeps the, the rich child in line uh, and teaches them, um, teaches them school, whatever education that they had. It's there to lead us to Christ. The purpose of the law, one of the purposes of the law is to lead us to Christ. Why? Because we can't keep it. It brings us to despair. It brings us to the point where we say, I can't do this. Help me. Have mercy on me. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. So the problem with the law is that the old covenant sacrifice only dealt with sin externally. It could not make him who performed the service perfect in regard to conscience. We see that in verse 9. Uh, So the Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. The problem with the law, the problem with the sacrifice is that it is only an external covering for your sin, it doesn't deal with the root cause of your sin. It doesn't deal with your heart. It doesn't deal with you internally. You can have an outward obedience, but have a, a heart that is far from the Lord. Look at the Pharisees, right? What did Jesus call them? They polish the outside of the bowl, make it look really good, but inside is corruption. Or they're whitewashed tombs that look really good on inside, but what's I mean, on the outside, but what's on the inside? Dead man's bones. Okay. The problem with the law and the sacrifices is that at best it's an external covering and it doesn't deal with the heart of the matter. The old covenant was incapable of releasing people from the bondage of sin. And the bondage of sin is internal. You're so quiet. Make some noise. Do something. Make me nervous when you don't. Somebody cough. All right, thank you. <laughs> so the whole point of Hebrews is, what? People are returning to this stuff that doesn't lead to life. It's not bad, but it's not the best. 
It was a copy. It was a shadow. It was um, a prefiguring. It was a reenactment before the event. But as we go on here, it says Christ brought the heavenly temple in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, the heavenly temple. Christ bought the real thing. He didn't bring the copy of the shadow, he brought the real thing. With his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. He says, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, verse 12, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. He didn't do away with the Mosaic covenant. He he fulfilled it. You don't have to continually go back and do all these sacrifices again because his sacrifice was sufficient to not just make an outer garment, he made an inner garment. He got to the root cause and his sacrifice because he was God, the God-man, was infinitely efficacious for everyone. Romans 8, 3, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. How? By sending his, son, his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as what? As an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So we talked earlier from Galatians about the law being a tutor and a, ma- a, a pedagogos, a, a schoolmaster that leads us and drives us to Christ. Why? Because we can't keep it perfectly. But it goes on in verse 24 of Galatians 3, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized in the Christ have what? Have clothed yourselves with Christ. We've exchanged the dead animal garment for the skin of Christ. And we're wrapped in the the work and the dead body of Christ. And it's the kind of garment that when you wear it, converts your insides as well as protects you from the outside. And that's the difference. That's the major difference, as we'll see. Christ's sacrifice not only paid the redemption price, it internally freed us from the slavery of sin. We see in verse 14, But how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience, cleanse your insides, 
from dead works to serve the living God. That's why it's better. That's why Christ is better. He gets to the root cause, which is your heart. The Old Testament took sin seriously, but it only merely covered. Christ not only covers, he transforms. So Romans 6, 17 and 18, but thanks be to God that through you, though you were slaves to sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed and having been, what? Freed from sin. You become slaves of righteousness. So Christ was the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world and it was through his death that you were covered, you wear the skin of Christ. And when God sees you, what does he see? He sees Christ. And that skin just doesn't cover you, it transforms you. He has done what? When you believe by faith in Christ, you are set free from the bondage of sin. It says it. The law, the Old Testament didn't do that. And these Hebrews, these Jewish believers, were going to return to something that didn't get them what they needed. They tasted of Christ. They were being tempted to return to the shadow, the model. Last slide here. The fault with the older covenant was with the people, not with the covenant. But the heavenly covenant is founded on better promises, promises which take our sinfulness into account. The old covenants didn't take our sinfulness into account. Promises that what? Conquer our sinfulness. These new and better promises actually bring life. And like Jesus says, to reject Christ is is to reject the Father. Okay? Returning to um, the old covenant is a rejection of Christ. And when you reject Christ, you are rejecting God. You are rejecting the Father. So I think the message from this is that Christ does everything. And that our bent is always to return to some sort of work to make our standing before God in some way. It's always our bent um, that we are in control and that we are the, the captains of our own ship and that the appeal of returning to some sort of works um, 
is always there and will always be there with us. And that Christ now, when you look at the Old Testament and you look at the sacrificial system, there's a lot of action. There's a lot of activity. Um, my dad always brought up the point. He says, I can't imagine if they were actually obeying this stuff, the smoke can be seen from 100 miles away of all the sacrifices that you needed to, to fulfill. It would be a conflagration all the time if they were actually following it correctly. So you see the priests moving, going in. You see all this activity and action. And what does Christ do when he comes as brings the temple, the heavenly temple? What are some other temples in the scripture besides the ones we've talked about? I forgot to talk about this, but it's kind of important. Huh? Our body is the temple of God. Why is it the temple? How can our body be the temple? Some of our temples are a lot bigger than others, but... Because you're indwelt by God. Why? Because you trust in Christ and He comes in. You are the dwelling place. You are the temple. Why would you return to the physical temple? Another temple, Christ, is called the temple. Anybody know where? Revelation. And He also says something... He's in, the, he's in the presence of the real temple and he says what? Yeah, you destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. And he says that he was talking about the, his own body. So he's called the temple there. But the idea in the old is a lot of activity, a lot of death. But the temple in the new is what? God, the, God and Christ. Christ resting where? At the right hand of the Father. It's a temple of rest. Because everything's been done, everything's been paid for. So let's close. Lord God, I just thank you for your word. I would pray that um, you would remind us anew of the finished work of Christ, Lord. And that we would stay away from the temptation to turn to other things other than Christ. Things that only bring death. We want to have our say. We want to have our part. But you call us to rest in the finished work of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to and remind us anew of that wonderful faith, Lord, to invigorate us the rest of this week as we remember what it is that you have done on our behalf and that what you have done is permanent, it's everlasting, and it's once and for all. We thank you for this in your holy and precious name. Amen.